0: Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a Black woman, and Alexandra Ditalia, a white woman.
1: We started talking about class because when you talk about race or ethnicity, eventually class makes it into the conversation. And I brought this up to Lenya and... Lenya's like, oh, no, I don't want to talk about this at all. <laughs> and everybody knows Lenya as well as I do at this point. Well, that's not really true. I know Lenya better. But our listeners know Lenya, and she's fearless. She's a power lifter. She lives in the present. She makes fun of my fear and all my neuroses. And here we have found this one thing that Lenya said to me. Oh, no, I don't want to talk about this. It's and my so here we are. Here we are, we're talking about it. So Lenya, why, why, why are you hesitant? Why are you hesitant to talk about class?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, class kind of means something very different in the um, African-American community. You know, like we just don't talk about it in, in the way I feel like white people talk about it, they're very comfortable to say, you know, oh, I'm such and such a class, whereas I think there is a shame around having, having privilege or money and privilege in the Black community. You know, I mean, there's something that's supposed to be very beautiful in the struggle, and I guess if you're not struggling, it's not beautiful? I don't know. But, yeah, so there's, you know, it's It's just not an easy conversation to have.
1: Sure. I I mean, I think when we were talking about this before we turned on the recorder, what I thought was interesting was that there is class definitions when we think about class as poor, working class, middle class, upper middle class, and upper class, and or the top 1% but then we then also we have that concept of self identified class how we identify what class we're in and i and i think today we're really not going to be doing anything as social scientists we're really just talking about from that everyday hearth level how do we how do people define themselves and where that really crosses in i think with shame and with this bill of goods that Americans have been sold about the American success story and the rungs of success and, and how that inter- intersects, right? Because everybody has the American dream that you can rise from any class to, to the top 1% and fall as well, by the way, but-
0: They have the dream, but it's not the reality, not at least anymore
1: yeah and I don't know if it's true. I just think it's much harder i mean in a sense i'm not i've certainly seen my brother in law's a success story in in the in the American dream i think in a lot of ways completely self made i mean he's a white man but it's completely self made and so I think it's possible. i just think it's difficult
0: but he but i don't i think it was possible up until a certain generation. Right. And then it gets to like, I think it will be way, way harder for the younger generation without some help from their parents to achieve that, that um, maybe not the, um, the traditional American dream, but to get to the 1%.
1: Yes, I agree. But even to not even the 1%, but maybe even just to comfortable home ownership. I mean, even just upper middle class did you identify as a certain class growing up or not?
0: No, because class isn't an issue in the Black communities. Yeah. Like,
1: you know, I'm
0: poor, and that's that.
1: So what's funny is in Maplewood, where I grew up, I do think we were really aware of class. It wasn't so much, at least for me. I mean, we talked to David France, our interview with him, and he, we went to the same high school. And I think his experience as a, as a black man is is different than mine, but we actually had a, a little town called it the village, the Maplewood village in the center of town and Maplewood's built basically on a hill and the train tracks go through the middle of town. So they're really, and the top of the hill were the wealthiest and the biggest houses and the further, you know, and on the other side of the tracks, the further you went away from those tracks, the smaller the houses were. Everybody in, in Maplewood to me felt middle class. It's like, but certainly there was the big wealthy mansion type houses at the top of the hill. I was right, I was walking distance to the little town. So I was, was like middle class. And then the very, the smaller houses like closer to mark it did sense that they, that those houses might have represented lower middle class or more of a class that was struggling to just remain in a good school district. But I'm not sure. I mean, but I was very aware of class since my parents were striving so much to get to the next run on that ladder. It mattered to me. To you, we pulled this chart. And are you willing to talk about this? Yeah, we can. All right. So, Dr. Ruby Payne wrote about a framework for understanding poverty, and it has sold more than uh, a million copies of her book. And in it, she has a chart which are the unspoken rules and cues of of a group, and she puts together this chart, which we'll put in the show notes below, where it really talks about the mindset of. Generally, the poor, the poor class, or the working class, middle class, and then the wealthy class, and and these are obviously general generalizations, but some of it rings really true. And then what we found doing this, when you think about self identity, is that you can sort of see the echoes of where you're reaching, or the decisions and how you've made, and how you're living your life, and also just where your ancestors have come from and, and the legacies that you sort of carry with you, whether they're positive or negative. Do you want to go
0: down the list and you'll tell me your thing and I'll tell you mine?
1: Yeah. So you want to start with, well, let's start with money because I think that's the clearest one to start with. Here for the poor class, it says money, the, the concept or the unwritten rule with money is to be used or spent if you're middle-class the concept or rules around money is to be managed and for the wealthy it's to be conserved or invested so i have to say until my mother died so this was just what you were saying about like the generations not yes moving without parental help when my mother died, I got a a nice inheritance. I mean, it wasn't, it was enough for a down payment in a house in uh, Northeast Los Angeles. Ever since then, I've thought a little bit about money as uh, to be managed. Mm -hmm. But really until then, I was living paycheck to paycheck and money was to be used, spent, saved for something short term. So I still struggle with to be conserved or invested. Like I don't do those things really well at all. Those are skills I'm trying to learn.
0: You? Yeah. Same. Like up until I guess I got married. E- even before, just when I started living with Shane, I think my all of my money was to be used and spent because that's it it would come in and had to go out. Like that's just the way it was. And then I guess after we got married, it was more like about being managed. And now I'm, I'm firmly believing in conservation and investing. Like firmly, like this is the plan. Like so I, was, I think we just grew up late. Yeah. <laughs> We're late bloomers. But I think this, this one particularly to me doesn't seem anything having to do with class and more having to do with age. As you grow up, these are the things that become more important to you.
1: But right, or you just mourn them, but here's what's interesting to me. So, and think back, think to your parents. My dad, who definitely grew up poor, arguably he's wealthy now. Even bringing me up, money was about getting an allowance, putting it in a savings account and then taking it right away. It was to be used, spent, and managed. Never really speaking about investment, and my dad would always say that being a lawyer—and I don't know if your dad said the same thing—was really just being a professional wage Because if you worked, as, if you worked in a firm, you were you make money by the hour. And so, he's often lamented the concept that he did not teach his kids about investment and wealth management. We just didn't grow up with that as a value because it really wasn't even on his mind either. Yeah. So partly age
0: for sure. Well, I guess in my house, because I was the girl, it just wasn't necessary to teach me anything about money. So I didn't even know how to balance a checkbook. Wow. Well, um, it that's, was just, a got, yeah. Yeah. that's a whole other show. Like yes. <laughs> my family, I was a girl, just no need to to treat me like, yeah, it was just, it's a, it's a different mindset and I'm not saying that that's an African-American or black thing. I don't, I don't know if it was just the thing with my dad because my dad grew up poor in the South and his ideas, the women were at home or whatever the case may be. Sure. I never learned to even balance a checkbook. the 70s and the 80s
1: I mean that makes sense that there would be that we're going to be we're educating you but we hope you're going to meet somebody
0: yes and not have to worry about it and not have to worry about it and it's to my detriment to my detriment because those years when I was single and I had to rely on myself especially when I was a single mother it was a struggle like just because I had I did not understand money don't you think it's weird that Public schools don't teach life skills like that. It's it's insane that that is not one of the things that you would learn. I would rather have learned that than typing or whatever that's stupid. Like, there's so many dumb classes that we learned in high school that were just not necessary to life. I mean, honestly, algebra and all of that stuff was not necessary, but it would have been necessary for me to learn how to balance my checkbook. I actually think you might have you might get more buy-in
1: since balancing a checkbook is addition and subtraction and division and multiplication the idea that you could teach that in grammar school even like beginning because yes. you you understand you're going to get much more buy-in because this is actually how you're going to be a grown-up and when you're a little kid what do you want more than anything in the world
0: you want to be a grown-up Yes. So I think money, this in this instance on this, in this chart, I feel like this is more about maturity than necessarily the mindset of, and I don't want, I I think we shouldn't say poor. I think we should say working class. I agree. Middle class and wealthy. I
1: agree. So what about personality? Do you want to go through that one?
0: So for the working class personality, they define it as is for entertainment, sense of humor is highly valued. And if you're middle class, it's for acquisition and stability. Achievement is highly valued. And for the wealthy, it's for connections, financial, political, social connections are highly valued. So which one do you? I think I straddle. This is
1: where I think I really straddle All three, but I I actually think even for the working class, I need to think that that's a little bit of a scarcity mindset. So if we're going into our understandings of an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset, certainly charisma is highly valued to me as my sense of humor is, but I do think it is because of imposter syndrome that I have. As far as values, I certainly struggle with achievement being highly valued. Like, and I've struggled with this as I've aged because I, that concept that you are what you do, it's part of the reason I left the East Coast for San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, But I will say that there is that part of me that still values achievement. Finally, when I look at the wealth, the personality is for connections. I wish that was true, but I have such deep discomfort with small talk. (laughs) 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 I've never been able to do that. Now, did my parents think that connections, like why they forced me to try tennis lessons and forced me to go skiing one weekend even though, I mean, those are things good parents did, but a lot of it was because of the connections that you would be able to make if you were playing these family sports. sports. Yeah, these elite sports. And I have to say, my dad's, my my mother and father's discomfort with those activities were palpable and I inherited those same, (laughs) that same discomfort. So what about for you? Where do you feel that you're,
0: I am firmly in the financial, political, social connections are highly valued because of my industry, I guess, in the fashion industry, it's, you know.
1: Well, as a lifetime freelancer.
0: Yeah. So I think, I don't think that, again, I don't think that's something that's a wealthy person thing. I think that's that has to do with the fact that in my industry, it is really important for me to have these social connections in order to in order to make it
1: yeah but here's what's interesting is that so at the law school we have this huge you know first gen population and we have a very diverse group student body group and we are constantly since we're constantly harping on the idea that you need to use connections you need to network you need to build relationships some of the blowback on that is that if you're a privileged kid already, you probably have lawyers in the family to leverage connections and to leverage relationships. And so it becomes a huge stressor on the first gen population Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because they're gonna have to start from scratch to develop it. So it isn't even that it's a natural value. It's that now this is on the task list
0: so that then takes me to something else. So uh, that's, a, that's a, probably because they're looking that the career path that they're going for, you n- values that type of a, a connection. Again, same, same thing like my career path, right? So it's just, and, and you're probably right. Thinking about someone who would be a first generation, let's say they wanted to be a creative like myself Right. would struggle with the, yeah, I know I, you're right. You're right, you're right, you're right. I just thinking about that.
1: I mean, you have to learn it. I mean, this is like, but you consider yourself part of the creative class, don't you? Like, so when we also think about.
0: But part of being a creative is having to have the wealth to be able to follow those types of ideas. I would not be able to be as creative and be able to do the projects that I do If my husband, you know, didn't afford me a certain lifestyle, let's be honest.
1: Okay. But that's then, but those are choices that you've made, but let's say, let's use a hypothetical. What about, and this is always what I kind of loved about San Francisco so much, at least in the nineties when I lived there, is that you'd meet a cab driver, you know, you'd be partying all night into the cab somewhere. And the cab driver was, had two PhDs. Mm-hmm. And was writing, I don't know, an opus of some kind, mm-hmm. and I'll say it was always a he, never a she. At least back in the nineties, you know, Pascha would join or or talk to you about things, but the person certainly wasn't. I don't think the person was doing that job just for fun. I mean, this person was working for a living, but there was a social net, my senses, I mean, maybe that person would have ended up homeless without that particular job, but to have the two PhDs, even though they might be classified as working class or in the lower class, they sort of don't rate on the schedule like or rate on this because in a sense, I always... I see them as sort of the, create. they're opting out, like it's an opt out class. Like they could, this person, and, and this is obviously barring mental health as an issue or anything else that would be an issue that would prevent somebody from using the 2-H PhDs, or maybe the person just wants to, eat, to have the PhDs and drive a cab, but then that doesn't really fit neatly into one of these classes, unless you're saying, what is your income, that defines your class but there's other things that define class and I find that more complicated because yeah. we're yeah. more than our income right so
0: that's why this is this is this particular chart thing is kind of I don't know I guess it's, I kind of find it weird because this is it's an ideology it's not necessarily like when I guess when a black person thinks about class, I don't know if it's the same for a white person, but when a black person thinks about class, they're thinking strictly upon wealth and privilege. Right? And so when you start when you start talking about these ideologies about personality and social emphasis and clothing and time, then it these are just kind of like abstract thoughts that a working class person could have a wealthy person's mindset, but just doesn't have the wealthy person's money.
1: Absolutely, but here's why I think this does matter. Because if you look at the rules of the wealthy column, even that we've talked about thus far, to be conserved or invested money and then personality is for connections, the idea is it's to keep power. If you look at, as we go down this right column, the wealth is about keeping wealth for themselves it's not a an abundance mindset meaning we raise everybody together fair enough yeah and i think what makes this interesting is that both the working class column and the middle class column there are skills being built mm-hmm. but you are still looking to move you know yeah. you're it, it's it moving and so but in the wealthy class, absolutely everything is to basically keep yourself where you are. Got it. And that's, you know, kind of that then leads to the next question. Does that mean oppressing the middle class and the working class to keep them from rising? And that's that's not the question we're posing here today. But I think that's what these values are getting at, that it. it's more than you can make all the money in the world. Yet you might feel like you don't belong. Right. The social emphasis for the working class, it's social inclusion of people they like. For the middle class, it's emphasis on self-governance and self-sufficiency. And then for the wealthy class, it's emphasis on social exclusion.
0: Well, then I guess I'm right in I'm right in the middle class.
1: Yeah, me too, right in the middle class. And I do think, also people I like. I mean, otherwise I just sound like a bitch, and I'm just <laughs> and you and t- I mean I a little care. bit of this is, but I have never.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like I don't care. I'm a bitch. Whatever. <laughs> people think I mean, people people are going to think what they think anyway.
1: Oh no, it's totally true. It's totally true.
0: I I
1: think the clothing thing is interesting. Well, let's skip to that one. I. Because here's the thing, as we're thinking about this, I just, did to to be transparent, you know, I went to a small ritzy college on the East Coast that I did not enjoy, but I met lots of wealthy people there. And so I have been sort of thinking about that group of people as I, as I meet, as we meander through this. And it's interesting that I do find it fairly true so far in that sense but let's go let's go to clothing so you tell me like clothing, clothing. Me read it out.
0: okay so you want me to
1: read it out okay, you go ahead read it out
0: so working class clothing valued for individual style and expression of personality for middle class clothing valued for its quality and acceptance into the norm of middle class label important and for wealthy clothing valued for its artistic sense, expression, and design are important. So you know already that it's going to be wealthy class for me. That it's you know, <laughs> it's valued for its artistic sense and expression. Like that's completely like I mean that's my whole that's my whole career and designer is important. Yeah.
1: Well, don't you notice that that's somewhat similar to the working class column too? Yes. School, style and expression and personality.
0: Yes. Yeah, I,
1: I would say I actually think I fit with both of them as well. And what's interesting here is,
0: but see, then okay, so if you go to, ex- to the possessions, it's well, also- I, okay, let's
1: go to the possessions. It's it's I don't understand possessions, people for the world. So
0: I guess it's valuing relationships, yeah. over things. Right, I guess, yeah. and then in the middle class, you, you would value things as possessions. Right. And then if you're wealthy, then it's one of a kind objects, legacies and pedigrees. Now I don't, I don't believe in possessing people. I don't think anyone possesses people. Yes.
1: I don't either. So, but surrounding yourself with people you like, I guess, community.
0: Yeah, I guess, I I guess as a possession, but that to me doesn't make sense. I felt I, like if this to me, what would make sense is when you're working class, actual things are important because you think things are what will build you to be middle class. Right. Right. Because you, you find a lot of like working class people, not that they're hoarders, but they have stuff.
1: Well, they want the, the, everybody wants what's next. And so you want the trappings of
0: middle-class. Right. And then they're saying middle-class, you know, you have things, but I, 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 maybe middle-class and working-class are very similar in the possessions. And then once you're wealthy, you don't have things, you have one-of-a-kind pieces and I think the
1: middle-class has things that are trappings to what they think wealthy people want. I I think, and that's at least the American economy, like everything is, everything pushes upwards.
0: Yeah, this is the consumerism type thing. And with clothing... See, and with clothing as well, when apparently when you're wealthy, you're you're valuing this artistic sense and expression. You're probably going to have less clothes than the working class person, but they're going to be more... Uh, a different quality and pieces that are this one of a kind, you know, sort of thing. Well, right. Like, so even if the middle-class
1: are saying that clothing is valued for its quality, when you say designer important for wealthy, that's going to encompass a higher quality.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. But it's the same with possessions. You see, like it's, Yeah. yeah. And so, and again, this one, I guess worry, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't say worry with me because it's, I'm, I'm, we're trying to like not, we're trying to get me to not be worried about this thing. But then again, I don't believe in stuff. So, you know, you see my house, you see that I don't have- things right I have less clothes than I've ever had like I just have I have thing I have pieces that I love and I wear them over and over again and they may be more expensive and that's why I can wear them over and over and over and over again because they'll last for a while and I don't believe in fashion I believe in style so my clothes never go out of fashion and the same with my possessions I don't have a lot of things I have a few pieces I have things I have pieces that are I guess one of a kind, <laughs> and <you> know, <laughs> I do.
1: Rem- fitting in, fitting in is so complicated because fitting in—it depends. Like where your self-esteem is, it depends where you grow up. It depends, you know, if you're thinking about. It depends if you feel seen because if you feel seen, you might not care as much about clothing. If you don't feel seen, you might be wearing clothing to to say, see me. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is that clothing is important to me. And and I do think this is middle-class or again, like stepping out into the, the creative class is that I want people to see me as an individual and as unique, and so I try to figure out how that makes it work. I don't really feel like I fit in one of them, but when I think about my mother, you know, she was definitely going into acceptance, into the norm of middle class, but since she was trying so hard to aspire to the wealthy class, like she sort of bridged both of those. I mean, I feel like, and it was very, my mother went to Annie says every Tuesday morning at 8am when they got the fashion designers, that's when they would drop off all (laughs) the new clothes from the designers and she would get there the same time to get the first pick on her way to work. Like that's how dedicated she was, but she had so many clothes. She did not have a small closet at all.
0: So as a, person who works in fashion and, and so, and, and I have been like a consultant as well for people who um, are trying to fix their closets or, you know, pare things down or get their sense of what their style is. There is a big distinction. When I look in a closet of someone who is working class, someone who's middle-class and someone who's wealthy.
1: And what do you see? What are like, what are some things that you see?
0: So when a working class, um, and I'm just going to say woman because that's mostly who I work with, when you go into a working girl's closet, you will find lots of clothes. And and I'm not saying they're bad clothes; they will look fabulous. They will be um, and they will be fashionable, and they will be from Zara, H and M, you know, fast fashion. Fast fashion is her best friend. In and out with whatever's in style at the moment. And there'll be a lot of clothes, lots and lots of clothes. Yeah. When you're dealing with someone that's maybe more middle-class, there will be a different kind of um, clothes. There'll there'll be more label-driven, like Ann Taylor. There'll be some Zara, because Zara has become a label now. Okay. And they'll have less clothes more, more driven towards their lifestyle. So they won't have like going out clothes, work clothes, stay at home clothes, workout clothes, this kind of clothes, that kind of clothes. You know what I mean? They know that they know their lifestyle very well and they gear their closet towards that so that they can spend their money wisely. So they can spend more money on the label because they're buying a few less things. So their suits and things will look less fashionable, but more stylish so that that suit from wherever, let's say Ann Taylor will be able to wear for six seasons because it's classically cut sure. and they'll, they'll pair it with, they, they understand that, you know, they have to spend a little bit more money on that, on that major investment piece and then pair it with the low end. And so that's when you'll see all these women talking about mixing high and low. Right that is a very middle-class fashion know-how type of thing. And there was a time in my life where that was me. Like I think from all of my life, that was kind of me up until maybe not long ago. And then when you go into a wealthy woman's closet, you'd be surprised how small the closet is. There will be way less pieces. And, the, and they will equate their fashion more towards like a French woman who will not go to Zara very often. But if Zara was having a collaboration with a famous designer, they would definitely have one of those pieces mm. because they're special. right? Um, and then they would, but they would have like
1: So, again, it sort of goes to that same idea of possessions of, like, one-of-a-kind objects.
0: Yeah, one-of-a-kind pieces, quite a few things that last forever. Think of the Chanel bag. Yeah. You don't get rid of that Chanel bag. And it doesn't, like, um, if you take care of it and you're not an idiot, it can last you, not only your lifetime, but you can pass it down.
1: Right. Well, no, it makes
0: total sense. So... I, when it comes to, I guess when it comes to fashion, I'm very much, I know these delineations. And when it comes to possessions.
1: What about the one about time? I think-
0: Yeah, this is a weird one. I found the weird one. What do you think about this one? You read this one.
1: Well, I mean, so for the working class, present is most important. Decisions are made from moment based on survival versus middle class future is most important decisions against future ramifications and then in the wealthy class traditions and history most important decisions made partially on basis of tradition and decorum well, a little bit of this rings true for me only because working class you're worried about bills paycheck to paycheck your time is spent figuring out how to survive. And I'm not saying that doesn't involve thinking about the future, but it's all about survival where, what rang true to me, where I think I'm solidly middle-class here, is future most important decisions made against future ramifications. You're gonna laugh at me, but I thought, oh, all the self-help books, (laughs) all of that, every single how to be a better person, all the self-improvement, Like find yourself, find your true calling, all of the books, all of the webinars, all of the life coaches, they're not, that's not directed towards the working class or the wealthy class. That's directed at a group of people who think the future is most important and you can make decisions that will alter your future. So if you go down to destiny It's similar. So working class believes in fate. You can't do much to mitigate your chances. Middle class believes in choice and change your future with good choices now. This feels actually very true. And it's why middle class people can be suckers for all the the materialism, like all the consumerism, like buy this, start making good choices and fix yourself all those diets everything all the plastic surgery yep all of it it's aimed at the middle class
0: yep well sort of the plastic surgery isn't because they can't afford it
1: no that's true
0: that just goes well it
1: i have to say right it might have started in the wealthy class but now oh yeah now with Groupon's, can you can get all sorts of stuff done if you're middle class and you can find the right coupon.
0: i know right you can get like a tummy tuck Exactly.
1: (laughs) We bought this house with a pool and I'm really proud that Eric and I bought this house together. I mean, it's, it's so I'm proud of ourselves. We, you know, got our gen X shit together and we, and we, you know, my mother died and allowed us to sort of take one step on the ladder, but we bought first houses and then we bought this house and, I have to say though, when people come in, Lenya, I also have a little bit of shame. Like, I do. Do you think that I'm being ostentatious? Do you? I don't want people to think that I'm being showy. I, I completely overshare and let people know that a part of this is an inheritance issue. That this is that I that I am not self-made
0: by any means. Oversharing, yeah, you know, the the whole, that's the whole imposter syndrome, thinking that you have to tell people. I have finally gotten past that. I, fi- I got past that in Australia. Well, isn't that weird though, because people want to be there
1: so bad, like people want to get to that, to be first, to be wealthy class, to be in that top 1% to be in the top 5% or whatever it is, but to sort of have what they call, what are like first world problems or white people problems, you know? And so, and then there's shame for it. It's complicated. And I always feel bad when I actually travel to a third world country and, and people travel and they come back and they're like, oh, I, you know, I saw the, the poor communities and they were so much happier than we were. You know, then we are in our middle class, upper middle
0: class. Upper no, because class. money doesn't buy happiness. Money, money just right. money just cushions certain things, but money doesn't buy happiness. And, and I only know this because I have been so poor and I have now been I'm comfortable, right? I right so I know that money doesn't buy happiness because I would be a whole lot happier if that was the truth. <laughs> you know? No, it's true. I mean I I don't want
1: people to worry that I'm not happy, but I the happiest time in my life actually was the time when I was probably poorest and I didn't know where the next dollar was coming from. Like Same. in my late twenties, early
0: thirties, when I was struggling. Same. When I was struggling and I was like my food, it was, I went through a period of time when Kinene was really little and I first became a single mom. Where if I had like when I got my paycheck, it was divvied out for the food for the dog because I had maybe food for Kadeem and then everything else. You know what I mean? Like Kadeem had to have food. He had to have his school uniform. He had to have all the things he needed for school. And then the money for anything and everything else came after that. Like, and so sometimes, you know, rent was short or sometimes this was short and, and, but I was never unhappy. I had great friends. I don't know even how, but we managed to do things and still have fun. And, you know, and like now I don't really want for anything. I'm very lucky And I I will say this without having shame, because you know how, like, I don't like to talk about these types of things, but I don't, I'm very lucky. I don't want for anything. If I, or rather, I don't need anything. I want lots of things that I don't have, but I don't need anything. If I need it, I, you know, my husband will get it if I need it, if I can't afford it myself. Right. But And and, And I'm so, and one of the reasons why I think at this moment in time, I'm probably the richest I've ever been in my life, even though I don't really make a lot of money is because any money that I make can go where I want it to go.
1: Right. But that's very, you're also very internally rich. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's partly why I love you so much is that you're, you're always living in the present and it's not always, it's, money's not important in, in that sense. And I mean, that is a huge privilege to be able to say money isn't important because if you don't know where rents come, you've been there and so have I, where money defines every decision of every day. yeah. Um, and I've, you know, and I spent about a decade in that position. And, same. same. but it was a good decade. And what's interesting to me, like in looking at these values, is that there are a lot of beautiful values in the working class set, like the rules that if we could all live by those rules, maybe happiness would be easier to come by for everybody. Because even if you have money, like having social emphasis be on people you like and not about exclusion and not about where you went to school or who you came up with or culture, like whatever it is, if it's just about people you connect with, then I think that's a pretty good way to be and you'll have more community.
0: But there's truth in that because a lot of wealthy people, when when you think of the extreme wealthy people, they don't have people around them and they don't have community. There is something to be said for seeing a lot of wealthy people being unhappy. Uh, of course. be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and this is something again, This again because I'm not, I'm going to try not to be shamed about what I'm saying, but this is one of the things that I think in the black community and my family, especially don't understand. They don't understand that more money isn't going to give them, isn't going to give them happiness. More money comes with more problems and wow. these problems are, you can see in the wealthy um, if you start thinking about it on um, when it comes to so social emphasis and you know the things that really matter in life like friends and you know family you can see that that those are the problems
1: it, it also becomes to the point where you, everybody lives with a certain amount of fear mm-hmm. obviously but fear of of losing something can become like its own cycle. You have shame and you, you have shame and fear of losing what you have. I've always had great admiration for really self-made business people who do actually have the attitude, I can lose it all. And then I'll just build it up again. And I do think those people exist and those what I love about someone who could live in such a permeable place. It's, it's the kind of person that can relate to everybody. And because you're not really being so uh, insular Mm -hmm. in, in your class, because the truth is like, I sort of think about my life. I, I, my, my community of friends are all middle-class. I mean, that's, that's really it now. Do I have friends who have parents who might be have been very wealthy and they're gen Xers who have not remained in the in the wealthy class yes for sure do I have friends who are in the middle class now who started in from real working class roots yeah I think absolutely but i I feel solidly middle class and sort of how I walk through the world and the in middle class is a huge broad stroke and I and I have very middle class problems that are made easier because I didn't have children, you know, and that makes, I think wherever I sort of push into the wealthy class with all of my travel or cultural things that I can buy, or I also don't own a lot of things, but I do have one of a kind objects because I like art. And when I travel, I'll purchase art. I have two graduate degrees, so certainly pedigree isn't important to me, but education for networking and just the experience of education is important to me. And that feels very upper class in the sense because nothing it's not need that's driving that.
0: I'm going to talk to you. I think now I, I think I can pinpoint why I feel sort of mixed feelings around this subject. And you talking about your friends and how your friends are mostly in the middle class, and you run, walk through that world, and and that's where you are. I think for me, a lot of my friends are not middle class; they're probably working class,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Because may I like because I'm, I guess, if it weren't for you know, like my, like I, I have jobs. I have like these jobs and they're not necessarily careers. And so like, let's say when I worked at the wine department, I was the wine manager at the supermarket and I made really close friends with the woman that worked at this. And again, not thinking about the fact that I live where I live and I, I'm, I'm, I can have this kind of job because I want to have this kind of job, not because I need to have this kind of job. I had my friend over, to the house. And we were having like, I guess, drinks and, you know, swimming in my old house and on when I had the pool. So I mean the pool, we had like wine and cheese. We picked out the wine and cheese together at the, at the supermarket. So it wasn't like it was anything special, but I forget. Yeah. And so when my friends come to my house, they look at my house and then they see me differently. And then I then realize I've forgotten where I fit in the, in, in the scheme of things. Yeah. And so it makes it re then I become embarrassed. Yeah. That's the shame. So, right. So this is another one. So I've moved into a bigger house, no pool this time, but a huge, I live in a huge house now, huge where Shane and I can have our own rooms for things. (laughs) Right, And there's just the two of us and two dogs in the pandemic. Neither one of us cared. It was fine because we had so much space to get away from each other when we wanted to. And we could be together when we did. Right. I feel like this saved our marriage. Like we would not have been able to live. Like we would have probably killed each other if we were in a smaller place during this pandemic. Anyway, when I went back to work, when the lockdown was lifted for that brief moment, again, going back to a job. That's a job where I work with people where this is their bread and butter and this is it. And they live within those means. And they were asking me, um, how do I get to work? How did I get to work? And I'm like, I walked across the street. Yeah. And they're like, you live in in this area? And again, forgetting that this situation is very imbalanced. So my social life and my friends... Most, not most, I mean, not most of my friends, I have a few are, would be with this working class. And I weed very well in that because that I always have these jobs to help support my career because my career doesn't make that much money right now. Right. I have at times made lots of money, but right now I'm starting all over again here in Los Angeles. So it's just like, I have these jobs. And so because I have these jobs, I'm working with working class people and I can roll with them easily because I mean, but prior to all of this, I've always been working class. Like I would have considered myself poor. And then it's super, super weird, super, super weird. And I think this is where I where I, I've, I realized that my shame around all of this is. And I didn't probably think about it until you brought that the friends up. You know, and then, I mean, obviously I told you the story about my family and my nieces and nephews all think I'm rich and I am not rich. And I keep trying to explain rich is relative.
1: (laughs) We have that too. Eric's family, which middle-class, but his dad who died last year, grew up poor in Berkeley, but managed to, went to Berkeley High, then went to Cal Berkeley, then went to actually Cornell for his master's in between there he was in the Korean War but ended up coming back and worked as a, a foreman for Bethel Steel so blue collar but rose up to become white collar and you know they owned a house in a small town outside the Bay Area which was definitely middle class and I have to say this is this is maybe East Coast, West Coast differential but growing up in my town that felt very middle class with the colonials you know it was tract housing but it was very old tract housing of its kind with big front lawns and big backyards and nobody fenced anything back then and so it felt like an idyllic small town like i think gilmore girls you know a cute town and i remember going to eric's hometown and thinking it was so ugly it was just like tiny like ticky tack houses like you know like postage I mean they were a nice size like several bedrooms and stuff but they would just all look the same and I just really felt the wealth of of place with where I grew up Mm -hmm. versus where he grew up and it's relative though I mean because you know growing up outside San Francisco is you know, more expensive than even growing up outside New York where I did grow up at the time. And so I just remember when we bought this house, his parents wanted to see pictures and then they asked the price. And it was this crazy thing where Eric needed to say for Los Angeles, this is a very middle-class thing we're doing. But we knew the optics and the perception were, you know, especially since he's a producer, you know, that he's now this Hollywood producer and now we have a house with a pool. But the truth is he is a Hollywood producer and we do have a house with a pool. So it's really just depends. Everything is so relative with, with how you speak of
0: it. I remember when Shane and I, moved into the last place we lived in, in Australia. We had uh, a penthouse apartment and it was fabulous. Like in Sydney, we had these 365 degree views from like the bay all the way around the Parramatta River to like the back of Sydney Harbor. And like during the new Year's celebrations, we could see fireworks literally all the way across it was spectacular and it was a fabulous apartment I, I've always said that if we could take that apartment and plop it here in California I would be happy oh yeah um it was a fabulous apartment and I remember when we first got the apartment we were looking for a long time to to upgrade where we were and I I don't remember which family member asked To see, because I mean, they were in America and we were in Australia and we sent them, I just like, I sent them the link, you know, like the, I guess uh, what would be realestate.com Australia, the link that this is what, this is what we got. And the shade that I got about the price and what they thought the value of that place was versus You know, like, I don't know, mind you, Australian dollar is worth like, you know, not as much as the American dollar. So it's not, it didn't have the same sort of, you know what I mean? Like the value, like the amount of shade was ridiculous. So ridiculous that when we bought this house, I refuse to send anything. I just was like, oh, when you come over, you can see.
1: Well, now it's so hard with Zillow and Trulia that you can just type in anybody's address and sort of find out. Yeah,
0: what the, the is. I don't um, give. I had not even given half my family my address. My father just got it for the first time yesterday.
1: No, I mean this is. I mean, but this is hard for a lot of people. I mean, I was talking to a friend who had the same problem. Her father came to see her new place, and all the questions were
0: about money. Mm-hmm. And how much did it cost? What did you buy for that? And and like, how much is this worth? And I mean when I got my engagement ring, that was like, you know, some of this crazy question. I don't even wear it anymore. I don't even wear it anymore because I can't, I can't, I just can't.
1: Some of that is insecurity. Some of that is because I am sure I asked, I'm sure there are, maybe there are people listening. Like, did I do anything like that? You know, yeah, as
0: people, were, no, not uh, comfortable. I would
1: not do it now, of course not, but I think in my 20s, I might have had a little bit of a nose sniff of judgment saying, well, how much did that cost sort of? And that's what I think part of bridging the gap is for me here is when we talk about class, the problem is, is that if we're all in this together, we should be, again, with an abundance mindset of like bringing everybody up because mm-hmm. I hate that I sometimes have pretensions that judge people for how they spend or how they don't spend their money. It's a thing it's a flaw in my own character that I struggle with because I can be extremely judgy about that. And in a sense I see it as a very as a scarcity mindset. So people might say, "Oh, it's a wealthy thing to exclude." And I was like, "No, I would do weird things like You know, if you're not shopping at a thrift store, there's something wrong with you. Like, So it was anti, it was almost like anti-wealth
0: because Mm -hmm. somehow
1: wealth was bad, except that everybody's striving for it. So it's this huge cluster. And then I can only imagine that it is harder for the black community because so much of wealth of building wealth is, is, is hard because of systemic racism.
0: Yes. And then if you have it, there's, if and not that I'm wealthy, I don't want to put that out. No, there. no, no. I know. But if you have a certain level of, of comfort, because that's what I, I, when people say, you know, you're rich, I'm like, no, I'm comfortable. When you have a certain level of comfort there, it's not a jealousy because that's the definitely the wrong word, but there is this, this sort of, why does, why does she have that type of situation that goes on? And, and it's very uncomfortable. I told you, like, you know, that whole story with my cousin in the shoes, I think was one of the main reasons why I, I really didn't want to talk about too much about class ever because it is just such an uncomfortable thing for me as a Black woman to feel that I have privilege. I totally understand that. And let's be real. Let's be honest. I have a lot of privilege. I live in an all-white neighborhood. I have a huge house. I'm really like comfortable. I don't, you know, like... You, you know, it's, no,
1: I mean, you do, but I mean, but the thing is, is that
0: you're not protected. You could still, I could still walk outside of my house tomorrow and be killed by the police. Yes, definitely. I have been been stopped by the police in my own neighborhood numerous times. Exactly. so. So,
1: but I mean, I'm very aware. I mean, I
0: have, I
1: have, such privilege, even that my believe me, parents reminded me all the time that, you know, we're paying for college. Like that's our goal. So you don't have to pay for college. I mean that was that was such privilege. Mm-hmm. Um felt like a threat while I was growing up, but uh, such privilege and just that sort of head start, that head start in life. And And I'm really aware of it and I'm aware, but I'm also aware that I do have a 401k now that I started at 40, maybe 42, somewhere around there. But so I have a a decade of savings, but the fact is, is I'm still paycheck to paycheck. That's what this is for me still. So I still feel very middle-class, even though I'm the, I'm the woman with the house in the pool right now. And
0: I'm paycheck to paycheck.
1: Yeah, and I work really damn hard for my paycheck. It isn't a very, you know, it isn't like, oh, I'm just sitting here.
0: I'm saying I work retail, Lord. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, so that's, but that's what makes like a class discussion difficult, I think, because I do think even as we're talking about this, so much of it is you identify with the class that you grew up in, you know, like it's an imprint. And, and, even though like you might like fill out a little form and it's going to tell you you're this kind of, you know, this is what class you are because they're going to just look at your address and Mm -hmm. your education level and your and the amount of income that you get in a year or your job. Because as soon as, the thing that I find kind of frightening, as soon as anyone says they're a lawyer, you would think middle-class. Well, I can tell you with student loans today, that just is not true at all. We're Mm going to have plenty of working class Lawyers out there who are going to owe more than they make for a long time. And so I wish people could talk a little bit more about class because if we could talk about class bias, because this is really when you read a book like White Trash or you read a book like Hillbilly Elegy and you talk about the white working class there are class differences there. That is like partly about the prejudice against the white working class that I feel like unless we're gonna bridge the gap and really talk about that class issue, we're going to create, well, let's face it, more white
0: supremacists. But I feel like class in the black community and class in the white community And even maybe class in the Asian community are so different, you know, like we just don't really talk about class in the black community in this way because no one really feels like that they are anything different than maybe working class. Right. right? I don't know anyone, black friends, anyone who would firmly be able to be comfortable saying they're middle class. I don't know anyone. Like, I really don't. And I told you, like most of my, like these friends that I have like are all working class because that's where I was. Well, now I want to do a
1: shout out to our listeners. If I do think that there are Black people who will identify as middle class.
0: I'm sure there are. I'm sure. But I don't know any and I've never grown up around any, I, and like, you know, I'm 53. I've been around a long time. I just don't know anyone that are comfortable to just be like, I'm I'm middle class. Right. Yeah. White people are very comfortable to be saying that, saying that. they. Well,
1: I don't know. I mean, because again, I guess I feel comfortable saying middle class, but I think I have a lot of discomfort saying I were upper middle class or part of the wealthy class. I think I would have a lot of
0: so that's feelings close. around that. Do you see that? So yeah, you see the difference. But I get it. I, I get we it. Have, we haven't quite gotten there yet because we're no. still we're, I think because of, you know, systemic racism, most of us still feel like we're working to get yeah. there. And even though a, a fair majority of us are there, it is still something that it's still so new. Whereas I think white people have gotten to a place where they're comfortable being middle and then they have that same sense of shame that maybe we have at being middle, being wealthy.
1: Do you think a lot of that might be that really because of systemic racism and institutions that it could still be taken away? How much safety do you feel? You know, so people talk about... Oh, a black man doesn't feel safe like walking down the street. But how do black people feel in the workplace?
0: Yeah, like you could be fired for any reason in time, or you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's like remember when David was, David explained it so interestingly, like it could just disappear so quickly.
1: No, and while I think that's true for everybody. I'm not thinking about it being my race or because of my race when something bad happens, where it has to be on the on your mind when something doesn't go your way. And because there's so much proof everywhere you look that there's still discrimination in the workplace, there's discrimination in the hiring process, there's discrimination in housing. And so court, however you can do it.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there is that, That fear that like, you're just one step away from losing it anyway. So why think of yourself being middle-class or when quite possibly tomorrow you could be poor, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm probably like, if Shane divorced me, I could possibly be in the streets myself. Who knows?
1: Well, I won't let that happen.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think it would happen. I, anyway. <laughs> I
1: mean, like that's, the, I guess that's the No, mind. I mean, I, I totally I get it. Like and I don't
0: know, like, I don't know how it would be. I really don't. It didn't happen with my last husband, but you know, he, I, didn't, I, I can tell you, I didn't, was not better off after breaking up with him. Was not better off. I was actually no, probably worse. That was probably the poorest I ever was in my life. That was the struggle. So, you know, but whatever, I was happy. (laughs) I was just so happy to be rid of him. (laughs) Like a lot of my family, and I will never forgive a few of them for being like, when I I came home after the first, after the divorce, being like, oh, we miss him. Well, good for you. Maybe you should have been married to his psycho ass. And then I wouldn't have had to deal with the trauma. I'm still (laughs) traumatized over that marriage. Poor Shane will attest to that. Uh, He can attest to the trauma that I had to deal, that I still probably have not completely gotten over from that psycho marriage. Sure, you know, and and so whereas I probably financially was not better off afterwards, mentally I was so much better off, and it took years to get my self esteem back. Well, that becomes more important
1: than anything is is freedom, independence, and
0: high self esteem. Yes. And I finally got that back. I finally got that back. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I think that this, is, I think we've touched upon something very interesting here with the difference between black class and white class, <laughs> you no, know? Funny.
1: Well, and also just the self-perception versus the labels that are given to you, depending on what your income level is.
0: Yes. Because black people just don't, think. I just don't think that, in general, like I mean, we don't think about class. It's there is a, there is a, we think about wealth, but we just don't think about class, and that's and, and that's a really interesting thing when you think when 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 we just when we talk about it like we I don't class doesn't really mean anything to me as long as I have it enough money to take care of myself I don't care whether I'm poor or not you know what I mean so linguistically I have
1: to ask you this question. Did your, did anyone, did a parent or anyone ever use the word classy with you? Like make sure to be classy and not low class. Don't dress low class. Don't dress classy. Was that a word?
0: No, the terminology or the vernacular that we would use would not have been that. It was like, don't, don't be fast. Okay. You no. Know, so it's um, funny
1: that, it, and so I just looked it up and it's classy is in my little computer dictionary, it just says stylish and sophisticated. I, I would say sophisticated is what my mom might've met when she said, be classy. Like just yeah. manners, be classy. Dress, be classy. Yeah. When you shop, be classy. And she was like, you'd never want to be low class. And the word that she would say, uh, was cafone. Like, don't be a cafone. Don't be cafone like, and it was like, there was certain jewelry that I wanted. She's like, low class. It's caffon. You cannot do it. It's, uh, the Italians, you know, the little horn. Yeah. It's it the little, so I wanted one. So I just wanted one. And my mother was like, no, no way.
0: Get, it's one, now. <laughs> <laughs> Get one,
1: one
0: now. But see, for us, it wasn't, it wasn't classy. It was don't be trashy. Don't be a hoe. <laughs> uh, You know, don't yeah. be fast. The, the older ladies, the older generation, you know, would talk about being fast. And you know, at some point, I really want to have that conversation about respectability politics because that ties into it. Oh,
1: absolutely. Well, um, we're gonna do. I want to do a whole episode on slut shaming.
0: Yes, which is part of it respectability. Be part politics. of it. So okay, absolutely,
1: definitely. Um, because, yes, and I actually may want to. Well, before we talk about this, everybody, we're gonna close out tonight and we're yes. gonna start conversation about other other episodes. But if you're listening to us, we're expanding, we're bringing in guests. It's important that you share our podcast and pass it on. If you've enjoyed it, send it to two people to listen. who might enjoy it. We're trying to scale our subscribers and we're good. So please do it.
0: Yes, and also you can get in touch and and talk to us about anything that you would like to hear us talk about. We have a website, womenbridgingthegap.com. We are on Instagram, we are on Facebook. So there's multiple ways of getting in contact with us.
1: We wanna hear from you. Thank you, good night. Good night, everyone.